This is Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence B. DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra. Here at Outspoken, we discuss projects from students, faculty, and the local community that incorporate public history. And because we believe there's no substitute for people telling their stories, Natalie Navarre, the center's archivist, will play some interview clips later on in the episode in our Out of the Archives segment. The DeGroff Center recently hosted the annual Hansen Lecture in Oral and Public History on campus. This year featured Greg Williams, Director of Archives and Special Collections at Cal State Dominguez Hills. Williams has worked in archives in every section of the country, but since settling in California, he's been occupied with a special project, the CSU Japanese American Digitization Project. This online archive brings together materials from Cal State archives around the state to tell the story of Japanese Americans. The project has a special resonance with our center. Former director Art Hansen, for whom the lecture series is named, spent his career interviewing Japanese Americans and documenting their experiences. The center's large archive of Japanese American materials is part of Greg Williams' project to link CSU collections together. We like to do an oral history interview with our Hansen lecturers, and our own archivist, Natalie Navarre-Garcia, sat down archivist to archivist with Greg Williams and started by asking him about growing up in Michigan and early influences on his career path. Uh, Michigan was hot in the summer and cold in the winter, so we took advantage of both of those. Lots of snow <laughs> to plow through and um, in the summers, we would uh, go on vacation to northern Michigan, which is what a lot of people do, or um, stay at home and watch TV and listen to ball games and uh, listen to the Detroit Tigers on TV. And uh, I would collect b baseball cards and in those years collecting baseball cards, uh, baseball cards have, had certain information, the locations of minor league teams and where the player was from and their names, which were often names that I didn't quite recognize from my rather staid upbringing. So those, that, that insight into baseball actually, um, uh, sort of led me into um, an understanding of, uh, of more knowledge. Which sounds crazy, but <laughs> nevertheless, there it is. Um, I'd also uh, um, go over to our grandparents' house, which was about 20 minutes away, and we would, um, I would thumb, go through my grandfather's uh, office and look at books and other things and uh, in photograph albums and, and see stuff that he was had been interested in at the, the turn of the century. My grandfather and grandmother both gave me an interesting um, sense of history and it followed me into my career obviously. <laughs> Many of our oral and public history students are interested in the archival career path Greg Williams took a decidedly personal path from the start. Being a little older, uh, coming from 
the Watergate era, I had an, always had an interest in journalism. In fact, I got my uh, bachelor's degree in journalism. And so in, when I was graduate, I graduated in, from high school in 1974. And when I was in high school, I was on the school newspaper and um, managed to almost get the paper shut down because of the stuff that we were writing. But um, so, and, and that, was, that was the Watergate era. That was the era where um, Woodward and Bernstein were um, doing uh, investigative reporting and uh, that, that struck my uh, eye as something really interesting. And, and that's what brought me to be a journalism major, mm-hmm. even though I never really ended up being a journalist. <laughs> Um, it's interesting because in my career today, most everybody is required to have an MLIS. I got a, uh, I went to graduate school in, and got an MFA in creative writing from the University of Oregon in 1982. 1981, very early in 1981, somebody, some library uh, HR person put me, took my application and put me in special collections and archives. What a good deal that was. Because I, even though I was there writing fiction and doing other classes and stuff, the, um, the working in special collections really did, um, in, it really connected with that part of me that was always interested in history. I had an interest in, in fiction and nonfiction and writing, but um, wasn't wasn't going to happen where I was going to write the great American novel, and uh, so I was able to fall back on this. As a result, I got an MFA in creative writing, and I worked on three interesting archival collections, three or four interesting archival collections. Uh, I can still remember them. They were just really big collections, and they gave them, kept giving me these bigger collections. One was uh, a comic book writer, text writer, Fox. His name was Fox. Can't remember what. Then there was a writer named Robert Cantwell, a writer named Margaret Parton, a congressman named L. Ullman, and these folks were just really interesting and, and, um, Basically, that gave me the true understanding that I could be an archivist, even. And um, so that, along with the writing, um, uh, worked well for me. And uh, I also happened to get a um, get a have a for a boss at the University of Oregon, a guy named Ken Duckett, who. Um, was a longtime archivist, and he'd been at Southern Illinois. And Duckett wrote a book called Modern Manuscripts. Probably came out in the mid-70s. It was sort of the book for learning how to be a archivist or manuscripts librarian of the 70s and early 80s. Um, that gave him the ability to call people up and ask, you got any jobs? So I started, just as I was graduating from grad school, I started looking and um, 
I got a job at the South Carolina Historical Society to work as an archivist for uh, two, or th th two or three or four years um, uh, on an NEH grant. And that was thus the first inkling I had of archival grants. <laughs> After William's first archival position at South Carolina Historical Society, he worked at several institutions across the country, in Oregon, Virginia, New Jersey, out here in San Diego, and finally at Dominguez Hills. He describes the similarities and differences between the institutions and their collections. Well, there are similarities between Colonial Williamsburg and South Carolina Historical Society because they, were that, they dealt with the Old South and they dealt with, they had older records. Um, the Oregon State Archives and the San Diego Historical Society, um, you know, they didn't settle until the 1850s out there. Um, and it, at least the white population didn't. And um, that's where record keeping started uh, for, for Oregon and in, in California. So there's, there's a, so it was sort of interesting that I, I become a, a curator of photographs in San Diego because, um, you know, there's, there's text records and there's people's papers and, but there was an interesting separation in San Diego at, at the Historical Society between archives and manuscripts and the photographs just gave me a huge opportunity to do publications and do exhibits and um, so uh, yeah it, it's, it's the age of the stuff and there's an interesting there are interesting models of, of how historical societies and state archives and archives and special collections form um, there's a Midwestern model where the State Historical Society is also part of the State Archives. In Oregon and California and many other states, the State Archive is totally separate from entities that collect manuscript material or history material. Um, certainly within the CSU uh, and um, the UC system, there's a gathering of collections of, of, of both community and important people collections. So um, I think the um, interesting thing of working in so many different types of archives is that um, there is a diversity of material and it, 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 it also shows you what you were collecting, what, you, what was collected and what was not collected. Um, in Charleston now, there's at least one institution that has an enormous amount of African-American history. At the time that I worked at the South Carolina Historical Society, there was maybe one or two collections of African-Americans where there's obviously slave records in, in those records of the the, the, the plantation owners and whatnot. And so the, the New Jersey Historical Society, Colonial Williamsburg, and South Carolina Historical Society had a lot of similar stuff. Um, it's in Oregon and California and at Rutgers that I dealt with 20th century stuff. And that's just, there's just more of 20th century <laughs> stuff. So um, when I went to, um, 
Cal State Dominguez Hills, uh, I was offered the job by a, by a, a woman who um, was the direct dean of the library, Sandra Parham. She had been the archivist for Barbara Jordan, the Texas congresswoman who, had, who played an important role in Watergate uh, as, as one of the people in the Watergate committees. And um, she basically, you know, let me dive into the collection. And in the first couple of years, I was diving into um, taking what was already there and creating finding aids for it. I got a initial grant for processing the records of the Rancho San Pedro and then um, in other South Bay LA collections. And then I went on and um, once that was processed, we were trying to get our collection in shape for the move to a new building. We were in a basement, of course, and we were going to move to a brand new building, and we were on the top floor. And so we had views of, of the Goodyear blimp and views <laughs> of downtown L.A. and views of Catalina on clear days. And... Um, the that new space gave us uh, a good impetus to build the collection and we've been building it ever since uh, the, the building of it both digitally with the initial digital collections and then the japanese american collections and physical collections uh, uh, relating to compton and watts and torrance and uh, manhattan beach and areas around in, in, the, in the South Bay, but also collections um, of African-American topics such as um, gospel music and um, I got one really interesting collection of, um, uh, it was developed by the folks that ran the first African-American bookstore in LA and it was the longest running African-American bookstore in LA. And what was unique about this bookstore is that they were more interested at the beginning uh, in, in, in what I guess you would call um, metaphysical, spiritual, new, new age stuff, long before the new age term was coined. <laughs> and they merged that with their interest in black history. And they ran a bookstore for about 50 years in L.A. until it until they both passed away, the, the, the Lagans. It was called the Aquarian Bookstore. Mm -hmm. So we got an enormous amount of um, books and material there. And my main goal in building the collection at Dominguez Hills has been to build a, build a collection that has a diverse sampling of a lot of different stuff. I'll go from buying, or uh, from buying, from collecting uh, a, a, a book uh, uh, from, the, from 1496 to uh, pamphlets on the labor movement in the 30s to um, a huge collection of Latino uh, newsletter, news, newspapers, underground newspapers, whatever, uh, in the 60s and 70s. And um, so it's basically building a collection that has a lot of periodicals in it, or old-time newspapers, but also people's papers and organizational papers, and that's sort of where I want to 
uh, have that material available for the students and um, accessible. All well and good, but on top of that work, the CSU Japanese American History Digitization Project hatched and began to grow. There's, there were two history professors at Dominguez Hills who, um, who inspired me somewhat. One was Judd Grenier, um, who wrote a lot of material on the Dominguez families. And the other was Don Hada, who was an Asian studies professor at Dominguez Hills and a prominent and fierce advocate uh, for the rights and the civil liberties of Japanese Americans. And so I was involved with that, and I could, once in a while, uh, I'd hear Don talking. He talked to colleagues uh, on other topics. And I finally decided, you know, there's something, there's all these collections. And I started talking to other archivists around the CSU in uh, 2012, 2013 at archivist conferences. And um, it sort of became obvious that there is all this rich material scattered from Sacramento and San Jose to San Diego in CSU archives and libraries that is both unique because um, nobody else knew where it was or knew about it, uh, but also it's totally connected to California and the Japanese American population the, in, in a larger sense the immigration to California of a variety of immigrant groups. Um, so um, it sort of came to pass when I was talking with other heads of special collections, Danelle Moon at San Jose who's now at UCSB um, and other, f other folks at Northridge and Fresno and Sacramento and San Jose and um, that you guys, you could find them in the online archive of California. You could find the stuff, the Japanese American stuff relating to camp newspapers, um, Obviously Fullerton too. There's a few little bit of stuff here uh, that that um, Art Hansen uh, spearheaded, and um, so that sort of confluence of different types of materials, uh, and given the fact that a lots of material b scattered around California, which is a big state, but there's connections. And C, granting agencies wanted to, um, uh, granting agencies wanted to have uh, collaborative grants. They liked the idea of different institutions collaborating. collaborating. At the same time, Processing grants sort of run their course. Uh, I, I don't think they should. I think people should continue to process, but I think the trend now is to process collections, create finding aids, and then create digital collections. And so what we were talking about 
amongst ourselves at these conferences and eventually at uh, um, meetings was they sort of needed this one-stop shop database so people could actually look and see what was in the particular collection and um, relating to Japanese Americans and go from there. So uh, we started a grant with six institutions. It was an NEH planning grant and we had, we created the database. We, we only, we, we had planned to put about 600 items into the database and including stuff from, from Fullerton and, and, uh, and elsewhere. And so that started the, the California State University Japanese American Digitization <laughs> Project. And we called a, uh, uh, the planning grant allowed us to have a meeting, a two-day set of meetings in which we called experts in the field, Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga, Roger Daniels, and Art Hansen, and Don Hada, and uh, a few other local activists. And then the next day we had uh, consultants regarding uh, digitization and whatnot. And so what we talked about in the, and there were the, the archivists from the six institutions that we started off in. Uh, so what they, they the, the marching orders the consultants gave us was to describe the material carefully with and with appropriate terminology and um, go out and find more material and digitize personal letters over um, camp produced stuff or uh, government produced stuff. As it turns out we have a good deal of that material but um, and, and the other thing was uh, try to get actual, you know, people's reckon, uh, recollections into the, into the database. And this is, comes from oral histories and letters and whatnot. And don't worry so much about photographs. Obviously, I can tell you now that there's more photographs in the collection mm -hmm. than anything. But the, because photographs by 2010 or, were, were, the, were the thing that people digitized the most, I felt there was a need to digitize personal papers and letters and whatnot also. Um, so with those marching orders, we uh, started work on this grant and it was a one-year grant. There was only 40,000 bucks and um, it was a planning grant. So we, uh, it implied that if we did a good job, NEH might supply us with, an, with another grant. So we created the database, we got 600 items and in the, in, on the road to that, we went to six or seven of the various uh, campuses around the state, and um, by the end of that year, we had another eight or nine partners, and we had a good deal of more than we originally had planned for. I don't know if we planned for like 150 items to begin with. Uh, in the meantime, I got a couple of internal grants, and we started digitizing some additional materials from the Dominguez family collections that related to uh, land leases 
that Japanese Americans had to deal with because they couldn't own land uh, pre-war. And then um, we found out we we you know we were would be waiting. We'd have to wait like a year or two to get another get the extended NEH grant. But what happened was that we found out about the National Park Service Japanese uh, American Confinement Sites Grant, and that had been developed to uh, preserve the legacy of uh, Japanese American incarceration and the physical places that they uh, that were used, the environmentally extreme places that they placed the Japanese in. And so um, we uh, did that. And we applied to National Confinement Sites Grant and then a, a year or some, so later we applied when it, was, when it was necessary for an NEH grant. So those three grants right there is, is quite a big project and we were doling out doling out the it's supposed to be a collaborative grant but in this particular instance I had to be the principal investigator and so we decided how much money we would give to each institution we gave you know anywhere between $1,000 and $30,000 to different institutions and um, we, we, we basically made guesses as to how much material would we do. So we said we'd do 10,000 items for the, for the NPS, we'd do another 7,000 for the NEH. And that's, those are crazy numbers. We met those goals, but it's, it's sort of an unfair thing because when you're dealing with oral histories, we're, we're, you're digitizing 30, 30 oral histories and creating the, 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 the transcripts and that stuff, that's a year's worth of work. And it's not, and it, it, 30 items doesn't look like, you know, <laughs> a lot of stuff, but it is. And so there's, there's that inequality of item level, which is something archi archives deal with in a, in a lot of different ways. There's no single way collections come to be preserved. The Ninomiya Photo Studio Collection is an example. In 2011 or 10, a gentleman who was a contractor in Boyle Heights was at his wit's end as to what to do with this collection of 100, 150,000 negatives and prints from a photo studio in Little Tokyo. The family had tried to give it to a museum. The museum had no space, so they didn't know what to do. The contractor having a bit of good common sense, a bit, um, put an ad on Craigslist <laughs> and said, come and get these photographs. So people came and got the photographs. Uh, one guy, uh, a, a camera operator from Glendale, picked up the most of the material. And so then, in 2011, I, I, I found a website that the, guy, the, guy, the camera operator had operated. He was trying to save the Ninomiya collection, but he was just one guy. And, and as you know, an institution can do a lot more things than an individual. So I offered 
to put some of these uh, photographs in an exhibit that I was doing. And then for the next five years, I called this guy once a year, saying, oh, you gonna do what? what are you going to do with the collection? What are you going to do with the collection? Are you going to do any of the collection? So finally, in 2016 or 17, he calls me up and says, I'm ready to give it up. <laughs> okay. And then two days later, it sounded like he was calling, leaving me a message at night. He says, I can't do it. I can't give it up. And then a week later, he calls me up and says, all right, I'm ready to give it up. And I said, okay, I'll be there tomorrow. And... Um, I got, I got there with a U-Haul, and uh, you know the, the cats had been sleeping on the boxes, and um, and we got there and we got the collection and we unpacked it from these huge boxes that it had been in, and there was one particular year of photographs, I think 1953, that smelled to high heaven, both the vinegar syndrome and. What in 1953 chemicals apparently were not that good <laughs> that particular year. There was something rotten about the chemics, chemistry, and boy, did they ever smell bad. And so um, we just started. The first thing we did was try to get it in um, in, in um, order. And luckily, each envelope or fold envelope was one job. And so job number two of 1950 was 1950-2. You know, so that was the order we could put the, the, the thing in. A lot, if not most of the material was identified by the person who was the customer. It wasn't always the customer. I guess I haven't talked about what's in that collection. Wedding photographs, pap passport photographs, funeral photographs, wedding reception photographs, um, Shots around downtown of businesses. Um, in the, 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 it was dated from 1950 to 1980. Mm. The material, the family apparently still has some pre-war material, but um, they still have it. And what uh, we did with this collection was. Um, quite interesting because we immediately applied for a Haynes Foundation grant and we didn't need a partner with the Haynes Foundation grant and um, uh, we uh, basically got two people to process the collection for a year year and a half and they got that into order and then we were able to get a California Civil Liberties Public Education Program grant and we included you in that first grant and um, the Fullerton in that first grant, but we also um, were able to get funding for digitization. So we digitized that stuff and the people processing it got a huge database and um, input all that stuff. <laughs> and then, so we got seven or 8,000 items into CSU JAD and because CSU JAD was sitting there, the database. Um, it was uh, it was available for um, it was it, we could we could tout the presence of this existence of, of library, connect it to pre-war, war and post-war history of Japanese Americans, and it 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 resonated well with these these grant uh, folks. We we have another. 
Haynes Foundation grant right now in which we're processing some activist papers. Mm. And we have another C-Club grant of which you're a part of. <laughs> and um, that one we're using some for digitization and some for, well, more for digitizing. We have a staff member who can digitize and create metadata for, for those. All this work has been done by a wonderful group of staff um, led by uh, Yoko Okonishi, um, former cataloger at UCLA and USC and Janum, and um, several other staff members uh, who uh, have been, and some of, them were, some of them were volunteers and stuff, and now they're real librarians <laughs> or going to library school. So we, uh, that project, which we currently have another 7,000 items out being digitized, and we have all the metadata done, so we're just gonna have to connect the metadata with the, with the images, that uh, brought our total for CSU JED by 2019 up to about 35,000 items. And, and meanwhile, with, with the other grant, we've got, we've got the NPS grant, the NEH grant, the two NEH grants, an NHPRC grant, and just recently we got another NPS grant. And one of the reasons we got the second NPS grant was because during the um, first NPS grant, we actually went out and got new collections that we needed to digitize. <laughs> and, and that's one of, one of the more heartening things is the reaction of the community either when we put an article in the newspaper or we do something on social media. We, uh, we had an article about a scanning day in Gardena, California, and we got, you know, another 500 items to scan just that way. Wow. And, um, it's, and what's intriguing is that there is room for more than one organization to get materials on this particular topic. And um, so we took advantage of that. And I think what I also want to say is that uh, my one of my goals, and I, I don't know even I don't even know if I can accomplish this, but it's more like uh, I'd like to see it happen. Is that CSU collections get more recognition in California as the the collections that they are, but in, in the archives world. Uh, CSU archives uh, aren't really recognized as scholarly uh, places of scholarly excellence, and they are. And so I wanted to just see, make that accessible and, and show that, and, and I think we have. And I think this set of grants, I, I think I'm talking about seven grants that have come to about $1.4 million over five or six years, um, shows the, the interest, the extent, and uh, the way a collaborative project can work if they, if, it wanna, if they want to go that direction. The Japanese American project has created a ripple effect. Promote, it's promoted the archives. It's, it's, it's um, given us a, a name as a place for local history, a recognition that Dominguez Hills is a part of the academic fabric of the greater Los Angeles area and of the CSU 
and the fact that um, uh, a, sm a small college, university, can create big things in, in the archival world. And so I'd say that the overall effect of the project, if for people that know about it, is, is very positive for Dominguez Hills. And it's resulted in not only material on, I've been able to do other exhibits. I did an exhibit on the Watts Rebellion. I did an exhibit on the LGBTQ civil rights. I did an exhibit on, um, what was that, an election? Oh, and the Chicano uh, rights movement, the, the high school walkouts of 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, that has, that's been rewarding for me because A, you, you hear the endless stories that kids get out of high school and they've never heard of this history or that history or their own history. And so what I try to do at Dominguez Hills, because we have a, such a diverse student body, is get a part of history or a part of, part of the student body's history out there and to show them that this history exists and to inspire them in that regard. Archival work can be mysterious for the uninitiated. What skills are needed to be successful in the archival field? You gotta have knowledge of how people approach archives. You have to have a knowledge of the options of what you can do and what you would like to aspire to do. You have to be able to deal with old people. And not that, and not that it's very enjoyable <laughs> to me, but it's, it's yeah, you got to deal with that. You got to deal with people in general. Um, you got to go out of your comfort zone because being the shy person that I am, uh, um, I couldn't imagine doing some of the things I'm doing these days. And, but there's so many different aspects to archives these days that you need, you should be able to grow a collection unless there's no room to grow the collection. More often than not, people come into directors of archive stuff and the collection's a mess. And you need to have the knowledge to make it not a mess anymore. And um, you need to do the basic stuff before the shiny stuff, this, the new shiny object. Um, I mean, yeah, you, you go get the new, the new software for this, but you haven't done that, that, and that. <laughs> uh, um, and, and, you know, with, with the way technology is going, you can uh, really, you might be able to skip a, a part or, or something sooner than later, but ultimately, Archives and Special Collections in a university or historical society setting should allow students the ability to touch history, touch the documents. Certainly, we're feeding them all this stuff through, through digitization, so it's much more accessible. But uh, the ability to look at a 500-year-old book or the ability to touch a 200-year-old document or a document that's 50 years old 
is a very important educational component of, of archives because as libraries become bastions of ebooks, the archives and special collections is going to be the place that keeps the books. And hopefully that collection of old books are is interesting and unique and I, I think that special collections and archives will be the unique place in libraries as we move on. I think the, the role of libraries is, for, is, to, is to serve patrons who need to use material for research. The role of special collections and archives is to show those same people that there's a whole broader world of unique books, unique letters, unique organizational papers, stuff that can, you can build your scholarship, build scholarship on. Greg Williams has some advice for an aspiring archivist or library director. What gets you hired is getting experience working. And as much as people don't like internships because they don't pay, an internship is, going, is sort of an investment Hopefully you can get paid for it, but uh, if you don't have any experience after you get a library degree or a history degree, uh, you're not going to get hired by a, an archive. How do you get hired by the archive? A, you um, go and you do volunteer, and that volunteer work generally can turn into a permanent position, or it can turn into a grant position. There's a lot that's unfair about the archival world because it's an underfunded archival world. It's underfunded because in university settings, libraries take most of the money and sometimes librarians don't know anything about archives. Sometimes they understand the role of archives and that's a plus, but sometimes they don't. There's been several CSU archives and other archives and tons of historical societies that sort of just floundered for a while, a long time. And when a new person comes in, there's a breath of fresh air and hopefully they, they take care of the place and, and up, update the place until the next downturn. Because I've seen it in a lot of places where there's upturns and downturns. I'm pretty optimistic about the, the, the professionalism of CSU archives and special collections these days because I see a lot of institutions hiring archives, arch archivists, and getting to work processing stuff, getting new collections, and whatnot. There was a big role of collections that were uh, got in the, in the 70s and uh, 80s, and a few, of, and a few of the places continued to function and, and deal with them and, and work well. Others just sort of let it go. And uh, yeah, and now they're slowly rolling back. So I'm hoping that the understanding that archives are unique and a draw for a library uh, is, is the impetus for deans and other administrators to um, push forward with funding archives, even if they don't know how to, to find money.
the archival career is really a cool career. And the archival career that I've had, that I've stumbled through sort of by accident, is used. It speaks well of archives that have cool stuff, interesting stuff. And it, it speaks well to, to the, the public that understands that. It's the job of the archivist is to convince people to donate stuff or to give an oral history or to digitize their stuff, to get their stuff out of a garage. Um, and it's, it's, it's you're never gonna get everybody to do all that. And, and there's a lot of patience and I think that I'm glad that I've been in my one job. After <laughs> bouncing around to other jobs, I'm glad I've been at Dominguez Hills for 15 years because I can talk to somebody. I could have talked to somebody 10 years ago, and out of the blue, one day they call up 10 years later and say, oh, you remember me? Uh, no, but um, I'm ready to give my stuff up because when an archivist talks to some people about stuff, it, it, it just doesn't necessarily happen. A family has to be ready to donate their materials and um, sometimes talking to an archivist is the impetus to get going on that. The DeGroff Center's Japanese American Oral History Collection is an important element of the larger CSU project. In Out of the Archives, Natalie Navarre Garcia shares some voices from our collection. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre Garcia, and I'm the archivist for the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. This section is where I highlight oral histories and other findings from our other projects. Throughout this segment, we will be listening to clips from our Japanese American oral history project. The oral histories in this project focus on the experiences of Japanese Americans incarcerated in camps during World War II. These oral histories can be found on csujad.com, the CSU Japanese American History Digitization Project's online collection of archival materials. During World War II, Frank Emmy was imprisoned at the Heart Mountain War Relocation Center in Wyoming, where he and other members of the Fair Play Committee led a draft resistance movement. The uh, Army said they were going to subject the young men in the internment camps to the draft, military draft, on the same basis as the people on the outside, which when we heard about it was really astounding. We didn't think it made any sense at all. So the Fair Play Committee took up the draft issue and we uh, held public meetings, mass meetings in various camps, various blocks of the camps, at which time it was standing room only capacity because the young men were very uh, concerned about this. And uh, as time went on, we held blocks in, uh, meetings in different blocks, and uh, we were just giving out information at the time, uh, explaining how everything was denied us, all the constitutional rights that we were supposed to have was uh, trampled on. And uh, after a while, we, some of us felt that we had to take a stronger stand instead of just being informational. So after a pretty heated discussion in our steering committee, several of us uh, felt that uh, we should take a stronger stand. And uh, we came out with this uh, 
declaration or manifesto, if you will, uh, stating that, uh, just put it concisely, that uh, under the present conditions and until we are restored all our rights, we will refuse to uh, submit to the physical examination or to the induction in order to contest the issue. And uh, through our efforts, about altogether 85 young men refused to uh, resist the draft, and they were uh, consequently, uh, subsequently uh, tried and convicted of the draft evasion and were sentenced to three years. Togo Tanaka was a journalist and editor of the Rafu Shimpo, a Japanese bilingual daily newspaper in California. During World War II, he was incarcerated at Manzanar and worked to document the conditions at the camp. In this clip, he talks about the efforts he and other Japanese Americans made to avoid being sent to camps. And there must have been perhaps a dozen other such proposals from different people. And in the rather desperate and you know, urgent effort to try to find ways by which we could avoid going into government camps, uh, I think a visit to Santa Anita came about. So all of these, uh, there were great plans. Jill Masoka came up with a half a dozen very interesting things where, um, let's see, uh, as I remember, we would have wound up in Utah. And then I recall Joe Shinoda, who was a member of the editorial advisory board of the Rafashinko. And Joe was very, uh, vocal about how you know, stupid this whole thing was and he was going to fight it and he would never go to a relocation camp. He never did. He took his family and flew to Colorado. But uh, Joe said that he might try to develop he, he was one of the more affluent Japanese Americans. He had a very successful multi-million dollar business in the uh, he grew San Lorenzo roses and, and nurseries. He had a fleet of trucks operating up and down the West Coast, and he just simply felt that the whole thing was wrong and it should be resisted to the very end. But uh, he had some plans that he came up with, but in the final analysis, uh, we, uh, we were unable to do much, and we just went to camp. Hmm. In 1920, Amy Uno Ishii was born in Salt Lake City to Japanese parents. When Pearl Harbor was bombed in 1941, she and her family felt the effects immediately. Here, Ishii describes her feelings after first hearing the news of the attack. I made the call to my mother, and my mother was in very, very, you know, very upset, and she said, I don't understand what is happening, but I'm hearing the news as you are hearing it on the radio there. And that, uh, she said, I can't understand Japan and what it's doing bombing Pearl Harbor. We had no knowledge of anything like this happening, mm -hmm. and it, it's just uh, absolutely a shock. And uh, we had very, very mixed emotions about it. Uh, we we were thinking uh, Japan is committing suicide. You know, I mean, such a small country that can all be the all of Japan could be laid right across the whole of California, mm -hmm. and it would you know be all over with. And um, what is that small country doing coming this long, long distance to do such crazy things, you know? And at the same time, we were very, very upset because 
the general public, even the people that I worked for, treated me and talked to me as though it were my own father who was piloting those planes out there in Pearl Harbor. Following the attack on Pearl Harbor, Amy Uno Ishii's father, George Kumamaro Uno, was detained at a temporary detention site located in Griffith Park in Los Angeles. Here, Ishii describes the moment when she and the Uno family realized their father was being sent off to another camp. It looked very normal, like any Sunday morning where there's mm -hmm. very little, you know, happening. And uh, about ten minutes after we arrived there, here came all of these trucks the, with these canopies over the backs mm -hmm. of them. Were they army trucks? Yes. And in these trucks came all these men out of this compound at Griffith Park. So we knew that if they came out of there, then our dad must be in this group. So we hid behind posts and pillars <laughs> in the building and all, not letting the MP see us. But when we realized that this was what was happening, they were going to be shipped away on a train, then they got off of the, the, the uh, trucks and lined them up. And they were not handcuffed or anything like that, mm -hmm. but... Um, Did they, they have guns? Did the soldiers have oh, guns? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, they had jeeps and uh, uh, trucks, small-sized trucks that uh, with all these MPs, mm -hmm. you know, military police with their rifles or what have you. And uh, when they lined all of the men up there, of course, our dad stood out like a sore thumb because he's very tall. Mm. And... Uh, he had grown a beard already because, you know, he had gone so long without shaving and they were all looking so tired. All of those men looked so aged and so tired and when we saw our dad, we just couldn't help but cry because mm -hmm. he, the, the change in just a short time was so drastic. I hope you enjoyed these clips. If anyone is interested in any of these oral histories, you can come on by to cough and either I or one of my coworkers will help you. Along with these interviews, we have over 6,000 oral histories in our collection. Go to our website at cough.fullerton.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. And that is episode 17 of Outspoken. Our thanks to Hanson lecturer Greg Williams, for Natalie Navarre-Garcia, and our producer Carrie Markin. This is Benjamin Cothra. Until next time.